Chapter Forty Two of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Forty Two. My eyes sparkled with pleasure at this unexpected interview, and I willingly confessed my desire to communicate all the knowledge of his brother's destiny, which I possessed. He told me that returning late to Baltimore on the last evening, he found his sister in much agitation and distress, which after a time she explained to him. She likewise put the packets I had left into his hands. I leave you to imagine, continued he, my surprise and curiosity at this discovery. I was, of course, impatient to see the bearer of such extraordinary tidings. This morning, inquiring for one of your appearance at the taverns, I was, at length, informed of your arrival yesterday in the stage, of your going out alone in the evening, of your subsequent return, and of your early departure this morning. Accidentally I lighted on your footsteps, and by suitable inquiries on the road have finally traced you hither. You told my sister her husband was dead. You left with her papers that were probably in his possession at the time of his death. I understand from Miss Morris that the bills belonging to her mother have just been delivered to her. I presume you have no objection to clear up this mystery. To you I am anxious to unfold everything. At this moment, or at any time, but the sooner the more agreeable to me, I will do it. This, said he, looking around him, is no place. There is an inn, not a hundred yards from this gate, where I have left my horse. Will you go thither? I readily consented, and, calling for a private apartment, I laid before this man every incident of my life connected with Welbeck and Watson. My full, circumstantial, and explicit story appeared to remove every doubt which he might have entertained of my integrity. In Williams I found a plain, good man, of a temper confiding and affectionate. My narration being finished, he expressed by unaffected tokens his wonder and his grief on account of Watson's destiny. To my inquiries, which were made with frankness and fervor respecting his own and his sister's condition, he said that the situation of both was deplorable till the recovery of this property. They had been saved from utter ruin, from beggary and a jail, only by the generosity and lenity of his creditors, who did not suffer the suspicious circumstances attending Watson's disappearance to outweigh former proofs of his probity. They had never relinquished the hopes of receiving some tidings of their kinsmen. I related what had just passed in the house of Mrs. Morris, and requested to know from him the history and character of this family. "'They have treated you,' he answered, "'exactly as any one who knew them would have predicted. The mother is narrow, ignorant, bigoted, and avaricious. The eldest daughter whom you saw resembles the old lady in many things. Age, indeed, may render the similitude complete.' At present, pride and ill-humor are her chief characteristics. The youngest daughter has nothing in mind or person in common with her family. Where they are irascible, she is patient. 
Where they are imperious, she is humble. Where they are covetous, she is liberal. Where they are ignorant and indolent, she is studious and skillful. It is rare indeed to find a young lady more amiable than Miss Fanny Morris, or has had more crosses and afflictions to sustain. The eldest daughter always extorted the supply of her wants from her parents by threats and importunities, but the younger could never be prevailed upon to employ the same means, and hence she suffered inconveniences which, to any other girl born to an equal rank, would have been, to the last degree, humiliating and vexatious. To her they only afforded new opportunities for the display of her most shining virtues, fortitude and charity. No instance of their sordidness or tyranny ever stole a murmur from her. For what they had given, existence and a virtuous education, she said they were entitled to gratitude. What they withheld was their own, in the use of which they were not accountable to her. She was not ashamed to owe her subsistence to her own industry, and was only held by the pride of her family. In this instance their pride was equal to their avarice, from seeking out some lucrative kind of employment. Since the shock which their fortune sustained by Watson's disappearance, she has been permitted to pursue this plan, and she now teaches music in Baltimore for a living." No one, however, in the highest rank can be more generally respected and caressed than she is. But will not the recovery of this money make a favorable change in her condition? I can hardly tell, but I am inclined to think it will not. It will not change her mother's character. Her pride may be awakened anew, and she may oblige Miss Fanny to relinquish her new profession— and that will be a change to be deplored. What good has been done, then, by restoring this money? If pleasure be good, you must have conferred a great deal on the Morrises, upon the mother and two of the daughters, at least, the only pleasure, indeed, which their natures can receive. It is less than if you had raised them from absolute indigence, which has not been the case, since they had wherewithal to live upon, besides their Jamaica property. But how, continued Williams, suddenly recollecting himself, have you claimed the reward promised to him who should restore these bills? What reward? No less than a thousand dollars. It was publicly promised under the hands of Mrs. Morris and of Hemmings, her husband's executor. Really, said I, that circumstance escaped my attention, and I wonder that it did, but is it too late to repair the evil? Then you have no scruple to accept the reward? Certainly not. Could you suspect me of so strange a punctilio as that? Yes, but I know not why. The store you have just finished taught me to expect some unreasonable refinement upon that head. To be hired, to be bribed, to do our duty is supposed by some to be degrading. This is no such bribe to me. I should have acted just as I have done, had no recompense been promised. In truth, this has been my conduct, 
for I never once thought of the reward, but now that you remind me of it, I would gladly see it bestowed. To fulfill their engagements in this respect is no more than justice in the Morrises. To one in my condition, the money will be highly useful. If these people were poor, or generous and worthy, or if I myself were already rich, I might less repine at their withholding it. But things being as they are with them and with me, it would, I think, be gross injustice in them to withhold, and in me to refuse. That injustice, said Williams, will on their part, I fear, be committed. Tis pity you first applied to Mrs. Morris. Nothing can be expected from her avarice unless it be wrested from her by a lawsuit. That is a force which I shall never apply. Had you gone first to Hemmings, you might, I think, have looked for payment. He is not a mean man. A thousand dollars, he must know, is not much to give for forty thousand. Perhaps, indeed, it may not yet be too late. I am well known to him, and, if you please, will attend you to him in the evening and state your claim." I thankfully accepted this offer, and went with him accordingly. I found that Hemmings had been with Mrs. Morris in the course of the day, had received from her intelligence of this transaction, and had entertained the expectation of a visit from me for this very purpose. While Williams explained to him the nature of my claim, he scanned me with great intentness. His austere and inflexible brow afforded me little room to hope for success, and this hopelessness was confirmed by his silence and perplexity when Williams had made an end. "'To be sure,' he said after some pause, "'the contract was explicit. To be sure, the conditions on Mr. Mervyn's side have been performed. Certain it is, the bills are entire and complete.' but Mrs. Morris will not consent to do her part, and Mrs. Morris, to whom the papers were presented, is the person by whom, according to the terms of the contract, the reward must be paid. But Mrs. Morris, you know, sir, may be legally compelled to pay, said Williams. Perhaps she may, but I tell you plainly that she never will do the thing without compulsion. Legal process, however, in this case, will have other inconveniences besides delay. Some curiosity will naturally be excited as to the history of these papers. Watson disappeared a twelve-month ago. Who can avoid asking, where have these papers been deposited all this while, and how came this person in possession of them? That kind of curiosity, said I, is natural and laudable, and gladly I would gratify it. Disclosure or concealment in that case, however, would nowise affect my present claim. Whether a bond legally executed shall be paid does not depend upon determining whether the payer is fondest of boiled mutton or roast beef. Truth in the first case has no connection with truth in the second. So far from eluding this curiosity, so far from studying concealment, I am anxious to publish the truth." "'You are right, to be sure,' said Hemmings. "'Curiosity is a natural, but only an incidental consequence in this case. 
I have no reason for desiring that it should be an unpleasant consequence to you. Well, sir, said Williams, you think that Arthur Mervyn has no remedy in this case but the law? Mrs. Morris, to be sure, will never pay but on compulsion. Mervyn should have known his own interest better. While his left hand was stretched out to give, his right should have been held forth to receive. As it is, he must be contented with the aid of law. Any attorney will prosecute on condition of receiving half the sum when recovered. We now rose to take our leave when Hemmings, desiring us to pause a moment, said, To be sure, in the utmost strictness of the terms of our promise, the reward was to be paid by the person who received the papers, but it must be owned that your claim at any rate is equitable. I have money of the deceased Mr. Morris in my hands. These very bills are now in my possession. I will therefore pay you your due, and take the consequences of an act of justice on myself. I was prepared for you. Sign that receipt, and there is a check for the amount. End of chapter 42